God wants you to be holy, not happy. Bet you've heard that dozens of times, right? Here's the only problem. It's not true. Well, it's not totally true. Hey, the first part, God wants you to be holy. Oh, that's absolutely true. Right? His ambition for us is that we might be holy, that, that we might become like Christ in all of life. And he has no deeper desire than that for each and every one of his children. That part's true. It's that second part that isn't true. I think it's off. I think it's, it's way off. And, and don't take my word for it. it it's not something you're going to find in the Bible. When you open up the pages of Scripture, you're going to see over and over again this truth. That our God is a heavenly Father who delights, who loves to bring happiness to his children. That our heavenly Father loves to give us good gifts. He enjoys bringing us happiness. That's what you'll find when you open the pages of Scripture. It's what the Bible tells us. And, and the Bible begins telling us that in the first two chapters of the very first book of the Bible. I mean, right out of the gate, when, when God creates, what we see is, is this truth that he loves to delight his children. And so when he creates the first man and woman, he doesn't put them up in an apartment. No. He, he plants a garden to place them in for them to enjoy. He, he plants this beautiful garden for them. And then he sends a, a river running through it. And it waters the garden, and, and it's, it's a river that, that Adam and Eve, that they can, they can enjoy, that they can bask in. And then the Lord God made trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. And so he crafts these majestic trees that would produce apples and oranges, bananas, all kinds of wonderful fruits. And you see, the trees, they could have been plain, the fruit, it could have been bland, but not if Yahweh planted them. No, no, that's not what he makes. No, he makes these beautiful trees for them to marvel at, these delectable fruits for them to partake of, for them to enjoy. That's what we find. There's an, another word that we use that, that's translate, that translates this word garden in Genesis. You know what that word is? It's Paradise. That's where they were. God planted Adam and Eve in paradise. That's what you see when you open the pages of Scripture, that, that there's this extravagance, that there's this incredible gift-giving that God does, that, that our Heavenly Father loves to delight His children, that it brings Him satisfaction to please us as His people. This is what we discover about God. And so several millennia later, when when the Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter to Timothy, his protege Timothy, he writes, this, it's called 1 Timothy, it's in our Bibles, and, and in this letter, what you see is Genesis 1 and 2 is going to echo in the words that he writes to Timothy. The Garden of Eden is, is going to reverberate in the teaching that, that Paul is going to, to share with us in, in 1 Timothy, because this is what Paul writes. He says, everything God created is good. Right, just like in Genesis 1, God had said at the end of each day of creation, he said, and he called it good. He said, this is very good. And then, and then Paul writes, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, this is what Paul wants Timothy to know. It's what he wants us to know, is that God is still planting gardens. 
That's what's true about our God, that he is still making wonderful things for us to enjoy, that he richly provides for us these good gifts in life. And, and he never runs out of them. He's not frugal because he doesn't have to be. He has everything at his disposal. He's not working with a budget, you know, where he's got to cut some corners or, or try to stay out of the red. No, no, it is plentiful, his good gifts to us. And this, is, this is what we're supposed to see in these opening chapters of Scripture. And then in 1 Timothy, we see it again. And what this means is that every day is Christmas morning with God. That God wraps gifts to us and, and sends them to us each and every day, all day. Are we looking for him? That's what, that's what this means, though, that, that he has created these gifts. He's given them to us for our enjoyment, for us to appreciate, to, to enjoy. Do you know the, the Greek translation of the word enjoyment? Do you know what it is? It's bluebell ice cream. Because God planted Brenham, Texas, home of Bluebell ice cream, sometime after he planted the Garden of Eden. And on the first day, he created homemade vanilla. And he called it good. And then sometime after that, he made cookies and cream. And then a little bit later, chocolate chip cookie dough. And then on the sixth day, he mixed those two together and he made cookie two-step. And then he rested. <laughs> this is what God tells us. And so, look, when, when Dana and I, I mean, when we moved back to Austin 14 years ago, we were out in no man's land, Southern California. And when we got back to town, do you know what the first place we stopped at was? We had family here. It wasn't to see family. No, we stopped at an H-E-B. And we hugged that H-E-B. <laughs> and the first thing we bought, bluebell ice cream. Absolutely. I tell you, I think it was two months straight. We had Bluebell every single night. Not just two scoops. We kept going. It was amazing. It was a little overboard. We kind of had to stop at some point or at least slow it down. But Paul's point to Timothy is this, that our father, he is extravagant in his gifts to us, in his kindness, his goodness to us. He delights to bring happiness to his children. That's what Paul's telling us. And so I wonder, is this how you think of God? Is this part of your understanding of Yahweh? That it pleases him to make us happy, to bring us enjoyment. Is this how we think of God? Is, is, is this part of his character, part of who he is, part of how he treats us? There's a, a theologian named J.I. Packer, and he certainly believes it. Listen to what he says. He says, pleasure is divinely designed to raise our sense of God's goodness. He says, look, God is a gift giver because of his goodness. It's just an expression of his benevolence. And, and the purpose of that goodness, the purpose of, of his kindness to us is, first, it, it's for our enjoyment, for our pleasure, but but it has a, a, this greater purpose, too, of helping us to encounter God's goodness, of drawing us closer to him in, in trust and, and appreciation, of, of bonding us to the gift giver that Yahweh is. That's what J.I. Packer says. So God, uh, he wants us to be holy but not happy. You're not going to find that in Scripture. You know, maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe 
God wants us to be holy more than happy. Now, I don't know if that's quite it either. I think God gives us happiness that we might grow in holiness. Yeah, there it is. This is true about Yahweh. This is true about our God, that he is a gift giver and that he gives us things to enjoy, to bond us to him in, in, that, in that trust and appreciation. And so surely there's no way to mess this up, right? I mean, just, just receive, enjoy, right? This is what God, God intends. So there's no way that we would mess this up, right? Wrong. <laughs> you know, we never fail to find ways to distort, to, to twist good things that God gives us. And, and unfortunately, that's the case here too. It's the case for every single one of us. And, and so when Paul writes this first letter to Timothy, what he's going to do is, is he's going to say, look, there, there are two deadly diseases that we can contract when it comes to God's gifts to us, when it comes to God's goodness to us. And, and these are going to apply to us too. We're going to see them in our hearts as well. So there's these two infections that, that we can contract. But then he says, look, there's also these, these two prescriptions, okay? There's these two solutions uh, there's a way out. There's a, a cure for each one of these two diseases. And so he's going to show us that in, in 1 Tim, uh, Timothy chapter 4 and then 1 Timothy 6 as well. And so let's jump in. That, that first disease that Paul warns us about, he tells Timothy, hey, keep an eye out for this. You're going to see this. That first disease is restricting God's gifts. We, we twist God's goodness to us by, by restricting his gifts. And what we do is we uproot the fences that God has placed around the garden of life that he has planted us in, and we move them in. We say, this needs to be more confining. We say, these things out here, they're, they're not good. They're, they're not God's gift to us. We can't enjoy these things. And, and we, we kind of set our own rules. We, we make up. We decide. We are the standard for what is good and, and what is not good. And, and we, we uproot those fences, we move them in, and we replant them. And we say, this is where we have to live now. And you see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 4 and chapter 6. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. Look at, look at what Paul says. This is going on in Ephesus at the time. It's going on here. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times... That some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Some heavy language here. Such teachings, he says, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received by those who believe and who know the truth. What was happening in Ephesus at the time, this, this church where Timothy was pastoring, is there was this heresy going around that said that the good life, that, that enjoyment, that it's unspiritual. The, the perspective was that pleasures are wrong because the body is evil. And, and this is what Paul is warning Timothy about, this heresy. And, and the teachers of this heresy, they said that marriage is not good, that, that certain foods are off limits, that, that God had called clean, that God had said, no, absolutely, take, eat, enjoy. And what Christians at that time were doing is they were hearing teaching about, about these good things that God had designed and said that we could enjoy, and, and they were hearing, no, stay away from them. And those fences were being uprooted, and they were being moved in and replanted. What God had ordained to be good, this heresy said, it's no longer good. 
Don't, don't partake of that. Don't enjoy that. And, and Paul has harsh language. He says, look, this perspective is a lie straight from hell. He said, this is the teaching of demons. It is demonic. And, and those who propagate this lie, those who teach it, he said, their consciences, they're broken. They don't work anymore. They don't work the way that God made them to work. And, and he says that there's, there's no place for this disease of restricting God's gifts in the Christian life. Let us not do that, he says. Instead, Paul's perspective is, is God's perspective, that, that God has placed us in this playground, this huge playground for us to enjoy, to, to fully partake of. And sure, there are fences around that playground, but even the fences are there to protect us. The, the fences are there to maximize our enjoyment because on the other side of those fences, those are, are things that will hurt us in, in body, in, in soul, in spirit. And, and so absolutely, God has planted those fences, those boundaries there to, to protect us, to watch over us, to help us to enjoy fully the life that he's given us. And, and so, so while God put those fences there, you know, absolutely, the God's word will say those boundaries, you know, they tell you when and, and how to partake of God's gifts in a way that will bring him honor, that, that won't injure you. So those fences that God has placed there, they are absolutely for our good. But what is evil, Paul says, is that when we decide to uproot them, to take them and to move them in and say, no, this is, this is what is now good. And we define good gifts by our standards instead of by God's. There's a, a psychologist, Karen Hornet. She describes what this disease, what it does to a person, what it does to the mind and the heart of a person. Listen to her description. It's poignant. She says, you want to go on a trip, and that inner voice says, you don't deserve it. Or in another situation, that voice says, you have no right to rest or to go to the movies or to buy a dress. Or in an even more general sense, that voice says, good things are not for you. You finish a, a great day of work, a hard day's work, you're tired, you want to rest, and, and that voice says, you're just lazy. And you say, no, no, I'm just tired. I just, you know, just need a, a, a little nap and the end of my tough day. And that voice says, oh, no, that's just self-indulgence. And after this back and forth, you either take a rest with a guilty conscience or, or you force yourself to continue working without deriving any benefit either way. What's so insidious about this disease is that this standard that we set up, these, these fences that we replant, they don't just stay with us. No, we spread this to other people too. And we watch what others do and, and we impose our standard, our, our rule for what is good and what's not good on others too. And so we find ourselves saying or thinking things like, well, that's not how I would spend my money. Neither should you. Or, or we think, you know, it's wrong to put your children in that school or to school them in that way or to parent them that way. We say Christians aren't supposed to drive cars like that. Or maybe the perspective is marriage, it's no good, it doesn't work. Or, or there's something not quite right about the single life. And we uproot those fences and we replant them according to us and our standard and then we enforce it on others too. Paul says when we do that, he says that's evil. He says it's wrong. It is from hell itself when we restrict God's good, good gifts to us, these gifts that he's given us to enjoy, 
to appreciate, to praise him for. But I love that Paul doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just tell us the affection that, that we can get when it comes to God's good gifts to us. No, he says, look, there's a prescription. <laughs> you know, here's some medicine. You want to be cured from this? Here's the way out. He said, it's thanksgiving. It is giving thanks to God. And, and he's going to say it twice in this passage to make sure that we don't miss it. Look in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 4. Paul writes, they forbid people to marry and, and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, the prescription, it's thanksgiving. And why thanksgiving? Why is that a way out? Why is that a cure for this disease? I think certainly one of the reasons is that when we are giving thanks to God, when we are looking to him, our eyes are fixed on him, right? Our, our energies are being directed towards giving him thanks for, for the gifts that he's given us. And so we don't have energy left over to, to call what, what, you know, what God has given us is good, bad. We don't have energy to, to judge or to criticize others according to some other standard. No, our eyes are, are fixed on the Lord and, and what he has given us so graciously. British theologian G.K. Chesterton, I love how he says it. He says, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought. And gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thanks are the highest form of thought. You will never think more deeply or be more appreciative or happy even than we, when you are looking at all the ways that God has blessed you and you are thanking him for those things. You're seeing those gifts that are scattered around you and you're saying, oh, dear God, thank you so much for your, your overflowing generosity to me. Thanks are the highest form of thought. <laughs> Great gratitude, it's happiness doubled by, by wonder. And, and that's why thanksgiving is worship. It is worship. And when there's a lack of thanksgiving in our lives, it's a sign of a diseased soul. It's a sign of a, of a hardened heart when we can't be thankful for what God has given us. And, and I tell you, parenting makes this so clear, doesn't it? I mean, you know as a parent that there is something not right in the heart of your child when they can't be thankful for simple gifts, for simple things in their life. That gives you great concern as a parent when you see that, when you witness that. And so for us, if we see Thanksgiving as, as weak or maybe even non-existent in our lives, we see it as lacking, I would say we don't need to grow up. I think we need to go back. Back to being like a child in our relationship with the Lord. I think we need to ask God to give us the heart of a five-year-old towards him in, in our prayers, in our, our thankfulness. I mean, have you heard a child pray recently? Everything is fair game. Right When they're thanking the Lord for the things around them, they're praying for the family pet, for forks and napkins, for their teacher at school, for gummy bears. Nothing's off limits. They pray for everything. They pray for what they see. They pray for what they experience throughout the day. And the beauty of it is, it, is that we can live that way too. That we can whisper thank you to God as we unwrap the gift of another sunrise or sunset. And we can, we can praise the Lord when we enjoy a glass of water when we're parched. That we can worship him after an encouraging meal with a friend. 
You know, this summer, as we're pulling out of our driveways to take those family summer vacations, what if we went around the car and everybody just took an opportunity, not just to pray for safety, sure, pray for that, but to say, thank you, God. Thank you for the gift of a vacation together. Thank you for the gift of rest, of refreshment. Get to go to a beautiful beach somewhere, or maybe a beach in Texas, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for your kindness in that way. You see, here's what's true about God. He always has an ear open to the thanksgiving of his people. He wants that from us. He wants that for us because he knows that thanksgiving is, is it's a prescription to fully enjoy the life that he's given us. He wants us to be thankful people, to give him thanks for each of the gifts that he sends our way. So that's the first disease. It's, it's restricting God's gifts. It's, it's creating our own rules for what's allowed, what's not allowed, what's good, what's not good in the Christian life. Paul says, give thanks. Come on, keep an eye out for all the goodness, the benevolence of the Lord in your life, and, and then just keep sharing with him how thankful you are for that. Ask God to grow that in you. And then there's the second disease, the second infection that, that we, can, we can take on when it comes to God's gifts in our lives. And he says it's, it's to elevate God's good gifts. It's to elevate those gifts and, and to make them, to kind of elevate them to a level God didn't ever intend them to have. It's to, to place them above where they should be in our lives. And, and Paul warns Timothy about that in chapter 6, just two chapters later. In verse 17, this is what Paul writes. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, one of the good gifts that God has given each one of us is wealth. And some of us here might think, well, I'm not wealthy, but we are. We are. Did you know that the top 1% of the world population in terms of wealth makes $34,000 or more? $34,000, that's all it takes to be in the top 1% in the entire world when it comes to wealth. We are wealthy. If you had a choice of which shirt or which blouse you were going to wear to church today, you're wealthy. If you drove a vehicle to get to church this morning, you're wealthy. If you had a choice about which vehicle to drive to church this morning, you are exceedingly wealthy. Yes, we are. We are absolutely wealthy. And, and a common disease that we can contract is to attach our identity to that wealth, to bring those together, to meld them together, and, and to make our value and our worth, to set it within the wealth that God has gifted to us. We can elevate our stuff, these gifts from God, to a level that God didn't intend. And Paul says in the passage, he says, look, there's, there's two ways. First way that you can elevate God's gifts beyond what he intends is arrogance. He says it's arrogance. It's, it's to think uh, that it's, it's because of us that we are wealthy. It's our talents. It's our intelligence. And we take credit for what God has so graciously, generously provided for us. I think the slogan for that kind of arrogance, the, the slogan for it, is I'm taking my talents to South Beach. That's what a certain professional athlete said when he was leaving his team, when he was changing teams. It's like, your talents... Those aren't your talents. Those are from God. God gave you those. And yet we say, my wealth, my stuff, 
my wealth, my stuff. No, 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 that's all from God. God owns it all. He's made, made me manager for a time, for a, a fairly short time, actually, of his wealth, but it's all his. He owns it. I get to be a steward of it. So arrogance is, is one of the ways that we can elevate God's gifts beyond where he expects them, where he wants them to be in our lives. And then the other way that Paul says that we can elevate the gift of wealth beyond what God intended is, is that we stake our hope in it. We put our security on wealth, and, and that's the foundation is, is how our wealth is doing. And what happens is our, our day rises and it falls with the stock market. Right? Why would we ever do that? I've done that before. It was awful. It was miserable. So how do we get free from arrogance? How do we get free from, from putting our, our security in wealth, in this gift of wealth that God has given us? Well, Paul's got a prescription for that too. This is what he says. He says, generosity, it's the way out. Generosity is the cure for that disease. And he says it in verse 18. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You see, nothing kills materialism as fast as generosity. The best defense against the idolatry of stuff is to be willing to share. That's what Paul is telling us, that, that the best way to detach our identity from our income is to regularly use that income to benefit others. Enjoy it? Oh, sure, absolutely. It, it's God's gift to you. Share it with others? Definitely. And that's what Paul's telling us. So if you gave your five-year-old a set of Legos, and your five-year-old runs to your little three-year-old, sits down next to him and says, hey, let, look at this. Let's play with these together. Wouldn't you celebrate that as a parent? You'd know that that is a sign of a healthy soul. It's the same with, with God and how we handle the, the generosity that he has shown us. And what I love about Grace Covenant Church is that so many of you see the wealth that God has entrusted to you in this way. I mean, you enjoy it because it'd be wrong not to, but you're so generous with it. You really are. I mean, right now, there are at least a half dozen meal calendars floating around different groups and ministries at Grace as a way to serve and, and to love on individuals and families who just need a warm meal right now. You know, they're under it. There's a community just in the last couple of weeks that has raised several hundred dollars for a single mom in our congregation because she needs help with groceries. She needs help with some broken appliances. She needs a new set of tires. So many of you share your vehicles with missionaries who come in town for weeks or, or even months. You open up your second homes to other families to enjoy. You're, you're generous with the wealth, with the gifts that God is entrusting to you for a time. And what I love about what Paul says here is he says, look, everything that we give away, we really keep. He says, everything we share, we are just sending ahead to the next life. And so look at that in verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 18 and 19. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love how God does this. He set up this matching funds program where everything we give away is doubled, right? I mean, of course, it goes to the original recipient. It goes to them. They get to enjoy that. 
But then whatever we give away, God matches that. And he, he puts it in our eternal bank account. He says, I'll be holding it here for you when you get here. He, he matches all of those funds. Uh, that's why missionary Jim Elliott, he wrote this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God matches that. That's who our God is. See, generosity, it is the antidote to elevating God's gifts. It's the antidote to arrogance, to putting our hope in wealth, to finding our security or our identity in the, the, the gift of wealth that God has given us. That's what Paul says. That's what the Word of God says. When I was a full-time student in seminary and Dana and I were both working jobs that made about $9.50 an hour, we had a friend. We had a good friend. And his name was Frank. And Frank was one of those kinds of people. He was one of those men who loved to be gracious with his friends. And so what he would do is every Sunday evening, he would invite Dana and, and me and several other friends over to his house every Sunday evening, and he would cook for us. And it wasn't casseroles. It was ribeyes on the grill. It was wine from Napa Valley. It was tres leches for dessert. It was a feast. And then on some of those Sunday evenings, Frank would walk us out to our car, and he would put an envelope in my hand with cash in it, and all he would say was enjoy. Frank was the kind of man who loved to delight his friends. He loved to make his friends happy. He richly provided all of those things for our enjoyment. And there were only two proper responses to his kindness to us. One is we could never say thank you enough to his kindness to us. I mean, Dane and I, we had never been poorer than we were in those days. We had never been richer because we had a friend like Frank. Now, the second response was, was it compelled us to actively look for ways to be gracious, to be generous with others, just as Frank has been, had been with us. Last year, our friend Frank passed away. And I flew out to L.A. for his memorial. So many of us flew out to L.A. for his memorial. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't easy to get there. But we couldn't miss it. And that church where his, his memorial took place, it was filled with friends of Frank, with seminary students who'd come from all over to celebrate Frank Luna, to express their love and their appreciation to this man who had loved each one of us extravagantly. You see, that's what our Heavenly Father's like. He's a father who loves to delight his children. He enjoys giving us good gifts. His deepest desire for us, oh, it's for us to be holy. There's no doubt about that. But he enjoys making us happy too. That's who God is. Let's go to him and, and give him thanks that that is true about who he is. The psalmist writes that, Lord, you fill us with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And we will feast on the abundance of your house 
You give us to drink from your river of delights. And Father, this doesn't have to be true about you, and this has to be true about you. This is who you are. This is your character. And Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us that we would be eager and active in looking out for all the gifts that you give us, the ones that we enjoy each and every day, the new ones that you send along our way, that we might have a heart of thankfulness to you, a soft heart, a caring heart. And then I, I pray that you would make us generous, Lord, as you are, that you give us a heart after yours, that, that we might generously give to others, Lord, as you do with us each and every day. We pray that in your son's name. Amen.